All right, welcome back. Let's recap. And this is part two. We'll go down that terminology rat hole again. Physical dependence is not by itself addiction, okay? It's a normal physiologic state. And then the concept of tolerance. And this is a sensitized cellular environment that um, takes a look at what you take in and it does with what it's going to do. Tolerance is not addiction either. It's a natural state of neuroadaptation to drug-induced changes. It's kind of, I know it doesn't sound interesting, but it's an important concept. Pharmacokinetics is what we do to the drug. Pharmacodynamics is what the drug does to us. Okay, so when you get into this tolerance world... And you get into the metabolism of drugs, which is so important to how they affect us. You start getting into uh, really important concepts. But, um, again, I acknowledge it kind of boring. Your, your drugs are um, metabolized either milliseconds, seconds, minutes, or hours. So if it's very quick... It's when they come in and they do their cellular effect and they're done. Or they come in and it takes seconds or minutes and there has to be messengers. And then those messengers develop uh, the basic cellular response and then you get the effect. Then then they want to go away. They either want to quit working or they want to do something else. And we talked about prodrugs where hydrocodone is metabolized to hydromorphone. Hydromorphone is essentially Dilaudid brand. And so hydrocodone, if it's metabolized, really looks at a lot of its effect by the fact it is broken down. What does that? Well, enzymes. An enzyme is something that makes the cell work or not work. So how does that relate to me? Okay, 5% of Caucasian Northern American descent individuals are resistant to hydrocodone. When we talked about the definition of pseudo-addiction, I got to give it a little bit of a break. There are some people that require more and more dosing to get an effect, and they just aren't seeking more drug. These folks that are resistant to hydrocodone do not have the enzyme 2D6 to break down the drug from a prodrug to the active drug or partly active drug like hydromorphone in hydrocodone's sake. The drug opioid class, it's a pure mu opioid, Oxycodone doesn't really have much of that problem, but it can. So here it is, CYP. <clears throat> this is in your this is in your liver, and this is how you get rid of drugs. The C, that's a family letter. Uh, letter. The Y, subfamily. The form is a number. CYP3A metabolizes fifty percent of the drugs. So if you have problems with that enzyme. Too much of that enzymes are not enough. You're either a hypermetabolizer, if you're 
if you have too much and you don't really get a good effect or a long effect or you're a slow metabolizer and we're getting into the genetic weeds. But it's important <clears throat> because drugs either work or they don't work. And that's why we do a lot of agent rotations. I want my oxycodone back. Well, no, let's try something else. You keep having to creep up here. I don't want to send you away for a very expensive genetic test. I just want to do what I think is right. All we have to do is switch the drug. So you take a drug like oxycodone, methadone, whatever, mostly CYP3A, and you give them a CYP2D6, like hydrocodone, all of a sudden, oh, the angels have sung. Things are working. <laughs> We're just the opposite. Andrea Trescott talks a lot about her problem she had after a dental procedure where she was taking hydrocodone and it was doing nothing. And so her do doctor raised an eyebrow and same thing happened to her son. Well, the angels hadn't sung. She needed a different agent. And when she got the different agent, everything was better. Andrea Trescott, highly respected world-known individual that is not interested in using or abusing drugs. She just needed some relief. Same with her son, who's an attorney. All right, so when you get down to metabolism, it goes a couple ways. Um, it can break down and it's eliminated, or enzymes can oxidate it and it's eliminated. And that requires... Uh, it requires energy. So in that energy pathway, the P450 reductase breaks down the drug and then it's thrown out. So in the liver, it's most important. It's more so than in the lung, GI, skin, or kidney. Liver function does a lot. There's another process called glucuronidation, and that's another day. We'll talk about that another day. A lot of drugs bypass the liver, get broken down, and some drugs just basically don't get absorbed, and they're just eliminated. So <clears throat> elimination is metabolizing or excretion of parent drug or its active metabolite or inactive or toxic metabolite. Excretion is removal without changing the drug. Clearance, well, that's how fast this occurs. Now, you have something that's rapidly cleared, well, it's not going to last long, bringing us to the half-life. That's 50% change in time to or from a steady state. A steady state occurs usually with five half-lives. You take the drug, you take another drug, you take the next dose, the next dose, the next dose. Five half-lives, and you hit a steady state usually. That's where tolerance and dependence come in. Because as you get a normal response, you're moving a curve. That curve is either normal or to get a dependent position, you move the curve to the right. So you have to take more drug to get the same physiologic effect. What does that mean? <clears throat> that means if you start going back toward where it would normally be, you could be going through withdrawal because you pushed the curve to the right. 
further concept of tolerance, okay? So there's this big, long curve, opioid dose over time. So over time, you're seeing that you got to take more to get the same effect. I'm going to tell you this. Most addicts will tell you, I don't take the drug to get high or get that euphoric effect. That's not why they're taking it. They're keeping that drug in them to avoid withdrawal. In other words, that curve goes to the left. At that point where they feel kind of crappy, the dopamine starts dropping in the reward center. I mean, there's a number of processes that go on. That's a hedonic set point. And, you know, go look that up if you want in Google. It's not that important. It's just I feel crappy. And if you take the drug, up goes the dopamine. I'm feeling a little better. This is what's pushing meth, crack, and a lot of potentially uh, addictive drugs because tolerance has developed. Push the curve to the right. They're dependent on the drug, a normal physiologic state. That's not necessarily addiction. Remember, you can get uh, pretty dependent on that Starbucks in the morning, and now you need a double shot and a triple shot. It's not necessarily addiction, but you just kind of feel crappy without your coffee. Take it uh, fast forward to um, the unfortunate position some of the addicts get in. And you push the drug towards uh, the right on the curve, and it takes a lot less uh, time and um, effectiveness to hit that hedonic set point. Okay, so what does that have to do with life? Uh, Well, are you dependent or are you addicted? I get asked this a lot. I don't want to become addicted. Will I become addicted if I take this drug? No, you might become dependent, but you're not necessarily addicted. So back to the five rules. Pain is a description. It's not an entity. You must have a diagnosis. Low back pain is not a diagnosis. It's a description. (sighs) Referral rule. If you don't think you believe in this problem or you think there's a problem with the relationship, you can't really uh, treat the problem, at least not effectively. No more so than with, uh, say, fibromyalgia. That's my wife calling me for lunch. Okay, know thy meds, five classes, pick five, and from a compassionate standpoint, I want to relieve pain. But from a realistic standpoint, I want to improve function. Do not chase pain. It's here one day, it's there the next day, and you never know um, where it's going to be. Don't chase it. Treat the problem, know the diagnosis. Okay, so I often talk about pain, addiction, and depression being the same thing. So, well, is it pain, addiction, or is it depression? What is it? Well, the reward pathway is this primitive part of the brain behind your ear and it it is driven by emotion not logic Uh, Spock is logical Kirk is a crackhead and progression of disease um, basically any disease but let me pick addiction is there's 
recreational and occasional use and then recreational steady use, reward-driven use. This is when being high is not cool anymore. It's uh, basically habit-driven. And it's not rewarding. Uh, maybe the first use of the day, I, I would say that would be the biggest bump because you've uh, restored some of your dopamine in the central nervous system and you get a bump. It's um, a, a transition from one part of the brain to the other part of the brain. Uh, if you want to know the names, it's a, a ventral striatum and transfers to the dorsal striatum. You can forget that quickly if you'd like. And then there's habit-driven use that leads to compulsive use. you got to have it. This is where people really get into the emotional aspects of pain, and I see it every day in my practice. People come into a clinic like mine with expectations. This is a pain clinic. You're going to treat my pain. But it's very difficult sometimes to draw the line between pain and emotional seeking drug use. It's very difficult. It isn't as easy as it sounds. And then there's denial. I'm not an addict. Why are you calling me an addict? Well, I never called you an addict. I'm an addictionologist. The uh, motivational interviewing is really a big part of our discussions. But what they hear out of my mouth and what their brain processes might be two different things. That's where the crash starts, the kind of bottoming out. Uh, People, they have a hard time understanding that, no, it's not normal to have drugs going through your veins or alcohol going through your veins, whatever. It's not normal. And... There has to be, as we say, benchmarks, or as, there has to be an exit strategy to what you're doing. If you have a disease state like cancer, there's no exit strategy for medications. And we have to use terminology very differently than if you're somebody that has a broken arm, bone break, bone hurt, but bone is not going to hurt forever. And there needs to be an exit strategy. Same with uh, a lot of dental surgery. And I can tell you a disproportionate amount of problems I see with uh, medication usage started with dental procedures. Uh, I think things are getting a lot better now. And then there's the belief that you have to have uh, a treatment that involves abstinence. Well, no. (laughs) No. It's persistent vulnerability you're going to have to craving and relapse and this circular wheel where you're doing great, you're doing great, you spin off, you relapse, but that's not uh, moral failing. Um, It's not something we should be judgmental about. It just happens, and that's part of um, the brain changes or the non-brain changes, you were born with it, a genetic thing. And uh, addiction uh, is a, uh, it's a brain disease, and it's not a disease of judgment. So put that to the side and give people a break that 
need to take medications. We have options for them. And in the case of fibromyalgia, for example, what is out there? Well, there's some new stuff. I briefly have talked about uh, low-dose naltrexone, add dextromethorphan for the NMDA effect. Uh, it's not a absolute that treating pain needs an opioid. We also talked about neuroinflammation and how there are glial cells that become activated in IL-10, and again, low-dose naltrexone probably are helpful here. But if we just keep creeping up on opioids, I think it's kind of a dead end. So understand the progression of fibromyalgia or any painful entity, as I just described, and try to stop it before it gets to uh, a crash. And it, it won't necessarily be there under the watchful eye of a careful and responsible health care provider. And that's, remember, rule three. If you don't believe the disease or you think it's entirely psychosomatic, don't treat it. If you go see a health care provider that just keeps piling on the Lyrica, the gabapentin, uh, sorry, brand name, uh, Lyrica, it's pre-gabalin. Uh, if, if the meds just keep getting piled on, well, let's try an antidepressant. Let's try uh, Cymbalta, brand name, sorry. Uh, let's try uh, uh, any one of the SSRIs, SNRIs. Uh, let's just keep piling it on and, oh, well, I know here an opioid. When you get in that lane that opioid lane, you get what's called a mu effect. The mu opioid receptor is responsible for euphoria. So why wait for an antidepressant to work? Or in the case of 40% of individuals with mixed depressive disorder, it doesn't work very well. Um, But everybody feels great with a Percocet. That's why they call them perky perks. Uh, It's got a little kappa effect, you know, this mu opioid and kappa. The kappa tends to, like, perk people up. Or the hydrocodone that is metabolized uh, as a prodrug and you get a good dopamine reward out of that, it, it can lead to a problem. And it can lead to impaired control over drug use, compulsive use of the drug, Continued use of the drug despite harm and cravings. Those are the four C's of addicted behavior. It's all driven by dopamine. It's rewarding, reinforcing. It's pleasurable. It activates that brain circuitry. Uh, Nucleus accumbens, ventral tegmental area, locus ceruleus in the case of cocaine. Uh, And it goes to the prefrontal cortex, and hello, dopamine is running the race here. It's a mother of all addictive things. If you look at the structure of dopamine, it is very close to amphetamines. So it all just kind of works. And the grand scheme of things, there's only about 100 known addictive chemicals. Nicotine is one of the top of the tree. So if you're a smoker and you like to drink a little or you like to take your opioid, 
and you have been given the diagnosis of fibromyalgia, or erroneously or not, the chances of you getting better are greatly diminished. So be aware of that. Well, I'm going to stop here as part two. And part three, we're going to get into the hijacked brain. And we're going to talk a little bit about it. And I'm not trying to take this uh, lecture that I did as a a serious um, peer-reviewed CME event into anything more than just some facts to understand pain and how we think. Those that treat pain have a thought, and it's based on experience. It's based on knowledge of neurobiology, of addiction, and uh, depression. So we want to keep things safe. I definitely want to get people to a better place. And so that's why I'm spending a little bit of time on this. And, yes, it's a little boring, but... We're going to get into kind of some fun stuff when we start talking about uh, the hijacked brain and, and what rats do, what we do. And I'll give you some some examples of real patients. And some of these real patients, maybe you, I, I don't know. Uh, this is no judgmental area. This is a hopefully helpful area. It's not medical advice. It's just information. So thanks, and we'll see you for part three.